Welcome back to the Line Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander. This is a place that we bring together the world's leading experts in all things health and wellness to help you optimize your mind, body, and movement. This conversation was with my good friend, Dr. Alan Christensen. Doc Allen is incredibly intelligent. He is a New York Times best-selling author. He wrote the Adrenal Reset Diet. He also wrote the Metabolism Reset Diet. Now he has, coming soon, the Thyroid Reset Diet. In this conversation, we get into what the heck that thyroid of yours is, some of the foods that impact it, some of the environmental conditions that impact it, and then we also get into some philosophical bits of Dr. Christensen's mind because he has got a lot going on in there. So it was really fun to get to have such a dynamic conversation with what such a brilliant human being. If you enjoyed it, share it with your friends. You can share it on the Instagram. You can tag Dr. Alan Christensen or you can tag me at Align Podcast and perhaps we'll reshare that thing. All right, I think we are ready to go with Dr. Alan Christensen. Hope you enjoy. Bow. You're a little furrier than last time I saw you, but looking well otherwise. That's the natural winter winter fur. Comes <laughs> on to stay warm. Not really. I live in LA. It's just it's all it's all a facade. Well, it looks good nonetheless. Hope you're looks well good. these days. Yeah, man. Things are good. How are you? Doing good. Yeah. yeah. Surviving surviving through all of it and you know, staying on track. Crazy world. How was doing the book during all this? Probably perfect. Yeah, you know, I guess. Not as much travel for things, but other than that, no big differences. Yeah. Are you planning on doing any kind of like book tour stuff or just all digital, I guess? All digital. Yeah. I mean, that would be the, the sensible thing. Right. And that's the most convenient thing anyway. There was a lot of stuff that was lined up for travel, but yeah, the world's changed. Yeah. Yeah. Do you miss it? Yes and no. You know, it's, I, I really miss seeing people. That's the thing. I, there's like two parts of travel, right? There's like hanging out with your friends, which is cool. And then right. there's like being, being away from home and like being in airports and stuff. And so, yeah, I missed the one part, but not the other. <laughs> yeah, I get it. Um, are you, the book comes out, when does the book come out? Uh, the 19th of this month. Great. Are you excited? I am. You know, I really think of everything I've done. I think this is going to be like the most impactful. I'm pretty jazzed about it. Really? What makes you yeah. think this is going to be the most impactful one? Well, there's been massive studies showing that this process I outline reverses thyroid disease like 78 to 85% of the time with nothing else. And wow. no one else is talking about this. Mm. It's kind of like a cookbook. Yeah, there's a lot of recipes. There's things to make. Yeah. Who did, who did the recipes? Are you a chef? I mean, it was like, I mean, I think it was probably like at least a third recipes. Yeah, I don't think I can legitimately use the term chef. <laughs> you are not. I'm handy enough in the kitchen, but I don't think I can formally use that title. Yeah. That's, well, who helped with the recipes? How's that, how's that, how did that go? No, I did the recipes. I just, I just oh, don't think really? I can call myself a chef. <laughs> Do you cook? Yeah. How long have you been cooking? Um, professionally. <laughs> that was how I did work through high school and stuff. Oh, so, no way. Like long time. That was my first kind of pseudo career as well. I moved to Hawaii and started washing dishes and then prep cook and then... <laughs> That was my path. My and, then, and, then, and then worked my way up. I was, I was, on, the, I was on the line doing like the, the, cold, the cold part and then hot. And then finally. And eventually you know, running the line, right? And, right. And then eventually got, and then, and yeah, they kind of bullshitted my way into being like a sous chef at like a decent restaurant, but I had no idea what I was doing. And uh, 
I would just go back, try and drum up some kind of recipes and then come in and be like, and pretend I knew what I was talking about. Very fascinating. <laughs> Very fascinating experience. When did you stop? Um, well, as far as that goes, like I did that throughout college, you know, paying my way. And once I got through nursing school, then I worked as a nurse during parts of before medical school. And then medical school, I just, yeah, so then I just couldn't do anything else. What is the value of cooking your own food compared to going to a restaurant? Yeah, I couldn't overstate that. And no. that's just like one of the most critical skills for, for life. You've got to be able to do that to get by. Why? Um, the food quality, just the freshness of preparation, you know, and then the specificity of that. It's, it's never the same. I mean, there, there certainly are some little boutique great restaurants here and there, but that's the exception. And most can't afford to have all their meals come from those. So yeah, like, like my son, he's 17 and I pull him in uh, many times a week and I said, look, here's what we're going to make tonight. And you know, I'm not going to touch a knife. You're gonna, we're going to talk you through this. And no, I think it's a critical skill. Do you think that there's any kind of like woo-woo, metaphysical, energetic, you know, emoto, water crystal vibe <laughs> association to making That's food? That's a funny thing. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of things that are that could be, you know, I just read a really great book called The Big Picture. And he basically argues that whatever we don't know about physics is not worth knowing relative to our experience. You know, it's, it might be worth knowing in particle accelerators or like near a black hole, but it's not worth knowing in our experience. But having said that, I do think there are countless ways in which our things that aren't, that don't involve any revisionist physics do affect our intention and our awareness and, you know, our deliberation. Like placebo and nocebo effects, those things are huge. And our psychology and our mind has a big impact upon that. So for sure, I think that that's part of how cooking your own food is relevant. I enjoy conversations with you. I already wrote down the big picture because every time- It's an awesome book. Yeah, every John time I talk Carol, to you, there's phenomenal. at least like, my guess is there'll probably be two, at least two other books throughout the, the stream of this conversation <laughs> that I write down and they change my life. Uh, the other one was The Elephant in the Brain. Oh, that's phenomenal. Did you, get to, did you get through that one? Of course. Is that crazy or what? Did that just like blow you away? So good. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so what are some of the hidden- traps that we end up avoiding by cooking at home as opposed to going to restaurants? Well, in the context of this discussion, the biggest thing is like just not getting out of control on the iodine. And there's this, with thyroid disease, there's this narrow window in which if you get low enough, your thyroid can detox and repair itself. And if you're too high, the disease just keeps on going. And that's affecting just massive numbers of people. What the hell is iodine? Yeah, so it's a mineral, it's an element, and it's totally weird. It's not like any other mineral you can think of. You know, we got like calcium, magnesium, sodium, and selenium, and all those things, their stories are boring compared to iodine. You know, we, we need them. We need them all over. They do hundreds of reactions. We can get too little. It's honestly tricky to get dangerous amounts. None of that's true for iodine. It does one job in one organ. And it's concentrated. No other nutrients are concentrated. Now, because of the concentrating part, our tolerance is narrow. If we get too much, we could over-concentrate it. But rather than let that happen, our thyroid just shuts itself down. Hmm. And so I think of iodine as a thing that like, we want to be getting, we want, like eat kelp and seaweed and all those things. So I, in my plebeian mind, I'm like, oh, you got to get iodine, more iodine. So where do we go wrong with that? It's totally true that we need it. And it's not, it's not a bad guy by any means. It's essential for life. Pretty, pretty bizarre stories about how 
its ability to transport electrons is probably how life got going in the first place. It's a real high energy molecule when it pairs up with another iodine. It's, it's unique. But with the thyroid, what we've learned in the recent past is that there's not a lot of difference from person to person in terms of how much iodine you need per gender, per body size, per age. But there's a massive difference in how much you can tolerate. So what we think is that some of our ancestors, there's, there's different genetic diversity, and some of our ancestors probably were in coastal areas. And they had to tolerate massive fluxes of iodine. They could get a lot from their seafood and their seaweed. And they could do okay with that. They could pretty well process it. But other ancestors, especially Northern European lineage, they were in areas that they were not as coastal. And so they had to be like miserly with iodine. They had to like hold on to every speck they got. However, in doing so, they lost the ability to manage these big influxes of it. And now those differences are not clear along ethnic lines by any means or throughout the populations. But yes, some people can do okay on varying amounts and occasional boluses. Other people cannot tolerate the excess. So how does one start to gain a relationship with their relationship to iodine? <laughs> if somebody has thyroid disease, they can know that they're in that category to where they can't tolerate the changes. They can't take that excess the same way. Yeah. No. Anyone else, it's good to be aware of at least the big picture because you still can drive yourself into thyroid disease by too much or too long. So the answer is just being aware of the big outliers and making them not part of your regular life. What would the impacts of having too little or too much iodine be? So too little, the funny thing is that in some ways are the same. So too little or too much can be factors for thyroid cancer, for goiter, for congenital diseases. Too much is the main driver for autoimmune thyroid disease. And globally, too little was a huge problem not that long ago. Like early 90s, the World Health Organization sat down and said, we've got 112 nations that are at severe iodine deficiency. And basically a billion people were being born with poor brain development because of too little iodine. And they said, this, is, this doesn't have to happen. This is a cheap thing. We can fix this. And it's pretty cool. They did. So 92 to 2014, that 112 number went to zero. So there's now zero nations categorized as severely iodine deficient. And that's huge. However, the flip side of that is 92, the nations that were at risk for thyroid disease to iodine excess, that number used to be zero. That number is now 52. And the United States is one of those. And we have subpopulations to where 30 to 40% of people are massively exposed to unsafe levels. In your book, you refer to it as the invisible sources of iodine, cosmetics and things of the sort. Is that dietary? Like, where is it coming from? Yes and yes. So hidden sources like, like topical things, things in the diet, especially in the, over those last several decades, processed grains and then processed dairy products, they change the most. So the other sources have been more stable, but then the other big wild card is supplements. So there's mm. a lot, many supplements have quite a bit on the label, but the label amounts are not accurate. You know, one big assay took 120 of the top selling multis and analyzed their iodine content and compared that to the labeled content. None were within 5%. Many had three to four times more than they were supposed to. Mm. So break down like what from your perspective, an ideal diet looks like from a, the lens of, of the thyroid, which everything's obviously interconnected. <laughs> but like, what's, what's a good day look like? If someone has stable thyroid function, they wish to maintain that, 
their target is about 50 to 200 micrograms of iodine. And that's, I wish it wasn't so narrow. I mean, vitamin C, you can easily offset scurvy with what, 20 milligrams, and you're not gonna get sick above what, thousands of milligrams. So it's, it's really tight. And what that looks like, there's not a lot of food categories one would have to restrict once you're aware of the big outliers. So you can still for sure have salt and you can have seafood. You know, in general, plant products are not big sources of that, but some animal products can be. So egg yolks can be some types of seafood, uh, processed grain products, dairy products, sea vegetables can be high. But yeah, just being aware of those things. And when someone's stable enough, I, I broke all the foods down into green, yellow, and red light to make it really easy. And if you're prone to thyroid disease, red light stuff, it's just not your friend. You know, I mean, you want to do the best you can to minimize that. Green light, always fine. During the reset phase of fixing your thyroid, you just do green light. And then when you're stable, that 50 to 200 range, that's green light foods plus one or two yellow light foods. A staggering number of people have some type of thyroid condition in the United States. Yeah. Is, that, is that right? Why, that's right. Is, it's tripled. Is, what is the, is the root of that iodine or like, what's the root of that? You know, there was a big consensus looking at just that question. So Dr. Hashimoto defined Hashimoto's disease in 1907. And in 2007, researchers said, how far have we come in the last hundred years? You know, would the good doctor be proud of us? And they couldn't give themselves a very good answer. They said, no, we've not come very far. And so they said, what are all the things we found? What do we know irrefutably drives thyroid disease? And they came down to three factors. Uh, one of which is iodine. The other two are age and gender, which we can't do as much about. I want to take a moment and discuss the value of your gut biome for your immune health slash function of your nervous system, function of your neurochemistry. So the way that you feel is dictated in large part by the bugs that are floating around inside of your guts. And that is exactly why we teamed up with BioOptimizers, who's a company that, once again, I absolutely devoutly trust their products. I think their ingredients are great. Their sourcing is fantastic. I know the owners, and I think they're, they're lovely. So we teamed up with them to support y'all with the Gut Guardian. So Gut Guardian has all the prebiotic business that you can need and the probiotic business that you can need to support your intestinal lining so you can be the best version of yourself. So if you are interested in boosting your immune system, I highly recommend starting to boost the good bugs inside of your guts. Uh, so you can go to biooptimizers.com slash align for a 10% discount off of the gut guardian powder. So I recommend jumping on the vegan vanilla, which I think is fantastic. They also have carnivore chocolate. Both are delicious. If you don't love it, then you can get 100% money back guarantee. So that's it. That's all. Sort out your guts. Jump over to biooptimizers.com slash align. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S.com slash align for a discount on your stuff. All right, here we go. Back to the podcast. Do you, from your lens, what I really appreciate about your mind is it's it seems to observe these various different topics from from different layers than just like the kind of myopic tunnel vision. Do you see any other, essentially, is there any like psychosomatic correlates to the thyroid? Because could your thoughts, feelings, other environmental conditions other than what goes into your face impact the function of thyroid? Well, so there's 
you know, what, what drives disease? And there's many things that all come together, but like, you know, what pulls the trigger? Like, what was that one thing that drove it over the edge? And there's massive data showing that those that develop Hashimoto's, especially those that develop graves, it comes on during like someone's worst times, their, their yeah. most major stressful moments. So for sure, the more we can do to keep ourselves happy and sane, the better everything works. Do you see any concise mechanism of, of where stress trickles into augmenting the function of the thyroid? Oh, for sure. So your thyroid, how that all works is a function of two big things. It's how well your thyroid can respond to your brain signals and make the appropriate amounts of hormone. It's the first one. Hmm. The second one is how readily your cells can take up that hormone when they should and block it when they when there's too much. And that second part, that's where the stress thing comes in. So when we're working well and we're healthy, we make a little cortisol spike to wake us up. I call it your internal coffee machine. And we shut it off as the day goes along. And that creates this cortisol slope. So without a healthy cortisol slope, your cell membranes cannot adjust to take up the right amount of thyroid hormone. Hmm. So the gland has to work that much harder and it can't control things at a fine tune level moment to moment like that. Hmm. So it seems like circadian rhythm and sleep and, and the signaling of all those hormones in a, in a consistent pattern would probably have relevance. Yeah. Movement, posture, physicality, breath. I'm thinking about your whole world and all the other things that go into our, our, our fight or flight response. What about movement? Could you massage the thyroid out of dysfunction? You know, a funny thing, uh, I've heard anecdotally about just that and also about people doing shoulder poses in yoga, having that be a benefit. And it turns out that the gland is kind of like a sponge. And so it's storing up active hormone for periods of about four to six weeks. And if your gland were somewhat sluggish, you, you can actually compress it and have a little more hormone. You can actually squeeze some hormone out of it. Uh, mm. Not a great long-term answer. And there've been a few cases of those to where the gland was overactive to where that made things worse for them. So it is possible. So would you see postural work being a long-term solution for some form of, of dysfunction if there is some impingement that's happening on an ongoing basis? Or does that sound like craziness? No, no. Back to the whole thing about the stress response and the fight or flight, that certainly can be one more factor driving someone. If they're in chronic discomfort, they're often not even aware of that, but it can be keeping them away from that parasympathetic state. So what the hell is the thyroid? <laughs> it's a little <laughs> thing that looks like a bow tie and it sits where a bow tie sits. It's about as big as a bow tie. I'm a big bow tie guy, so that's perfect. <laughs> and it makes hormones that control how quick we make energy you know, how well we repair our skin, hair, and nails and other tissues and how well we send nerve signals inside of our brain and outside of our brain. And is there other organs or glands or parts of the body that could be perhaps dysregulated that would inevitably end up impacting the thyroid? Or do you think it's with a thyroid condition, you're thinking thyroid first? I know that might sound kind of like a stupid, stupid question. No, no, I think not at all. So, so vice versa, your thyroid affects everything. It controls every cell and has effects on, on all of the glands. And other systems of the body do certainly impact it. The biggest one by far is the immune system. You know, most thyroid disease comes about by the immune system attacking it. So mm. the thyroid takes iodine and it puts it on a protein called thyroglobulin. And that's how it makes the key hormones. But once you get too many iodine atoms on thyroglobulin, then that extra iodine damages the thyroid cells and alerts the immune system. And the immune system thinks that this protein that belongs doesn't belong, and it starts to attack it. 
So that's how autoimmune thyroid disease starts. What do you think of any of the potential, again, like pseudo evidence, right? I don't know the legitimacy of it, but, but that are, again, thoughts, feelings, you know, if I hate myself, if I've, I've, I've have that narrative running, could I potentially start creating an autoimmune condition where I'm attacking myself at a cellular level as a product? I mean, chicken or the egg, but my, sure. my, my thoughts, my mind wants to destroy could that somehow whisper into the cells to start carrying that same message? Or again, is this more crazy stuff? Well, as far as the specificity of the words themselves, I'm not aware of direct data, but however, when you're saying things like that and thinking things like that, you're not in a healthy state. And we think about the whole, the sympathetic nervous system, the body's HPA axis, how resilient are we? How well do we regulate our stress response? And if that thing's out of, out of line, the immune system just doesn't work right. Everything goes off. So for sure, those types of thoughts and feelings, they don't contribute to a healthy state of, you know, brief fight or flight and appropriate tend and mend. You know, we, we can't be repairing ourselves well when we're in a state of chronic stress. So for sure, not feeling well and, and not feeling secure and comfortable and content with oneself can, can drive changes in the endocrine system and the immunity. You strike me as someone that is incredibly stable. Am I, is, that, is that fair? You seem like very consistent. Um, to a, it can be a fault. <laughs> some, some can call that stubborn sometimes, but <laughs> I think that, that's fair approximation. I think people would say that of me. Why? Why is that? Where does that come from? You know, right or wrong, I, I sort things out quickly. And a lot, of, a lot of the classic mistakes that we make in life, you know, I, I figured out early along that the things that seem hedonic are really not that pleasurable in the long term. You know, you, mm. you, get, you feel great for a little bit and you feel crappy for a week. You know, I'm like, well, that doesn't work well. And I just, I just figured out early along the kind of habits and the kind of thoughts that help me feel better longer term. And I made a lot of mistakes quickly and figured out what works well and just, just stubbornly stick to that. What is it in you that was able to process that information and go forward making what seems to be from the outside the, the, the right in quotation decisions on a regular basis <laughs> compared to, you know, somebody like me or somebody else that's kind of like <laughs> has the tendency of wavering. Quite simply, nothing that I can take credit for. <laughs> you know, just- I'm sure not. Do you think we're all just a product of our environment? Do you think we have free will? Well, so- Or product of our environment, rather. Well, you think it through. I mean, either, either the past is relevant, you know, or what we do is completely random. And in neither of those cases do I see something like free will emerge. I mean, yeah, either we're a function of what went before us. And in some way, what, you know, if I let go of this, it will drop. In some way, the past moves forward in ways that we can't always predict, but are relevant. You know, the past affects the future. Either that's true, or, or if it's not true, then it's total randomness. And, you know, dice are rolled, and these things happen for reasons that are completely random. But I don't see a lot of free will in either of those scenarios. For a person that has issues, like they don't have stay power with their diets or their fitness or their, their thoughts, you know, they're addicted to, to maybe thoughts that don't, don't serve their highest good, but they keep on slipping back into those, those habits. How would you coach a person to come back into something that's a little bit more, you know, more equipoise, more balance, more neutrality? Well, you know, back to that same thing I was saying. So, the classic definition of free will, that's quite a shocking thing for many people. I think you and I have had this before. You've thought deep about this stuff before. That doesn't mean that, I mean, we are part of our own past as well. We're part of that equation. So, I mean, we can make changes. We can do things. 
that become part of how we act in the future. So it's not to say that we have no control or that nothing we do is relevant. I mean, we can still get in habits, get in changes and make differences. But nowhere along the way is there some magic switch that we flip, I think. So in response to how I coach people, I think a lot about having a commitment for a certain time frame. And once someone has spent enough time in a mode that serves them better, I think we gravitate back to that. You know, I've often asked people about like a three-week time frame. I said, look, just exercise every day for three weeks or, you know, add this one thing to the diet for three weeks, whatever it is. And my, my belief is that if you really experience something that's helpful for you and it genuinely is helpful, you'll gravitate back towards that. It's not a matter of willpower then. Mm. I wonder your, your lens on dietary dogmas. Because I go, two weeks ago, I was like, I think I'm carnivore. I'm in, I'm carnivore. And then I did a podcast with my buddy, Doug Evans, who's like, he's got a book coming out about sprouts. We're in my, we're in my sauna. And we're talking about sprouts and raw. And I'm like, dude, I think I'm vegan. I think it's like, <laughs> I'm like, I bought it, I'm in. <laughs> you know, when, when you're healthy and you're eating good foods and you're training, and you got a good mindset, you play around and there's rarely big repercussions from that. But you no, know, I went through a lot of stages of that myself. And uh, they were early in life. I started at age 12 doing things like that. And one of the most extreme things, which one of the few things that's lasted lasting effects for my food preferences, there was a version of a Gerson diet, which was comprised of two foods, both raw and both blended together. And that was raw, that was liver and, and collard greens, like no other foods. So I did that for two weeks. That was pretty tough. <laughs> what challenges you? What, what rocks your cage. I need to know. I'm trying to like find like what's an angle to rattle Dr. Christensen. I'm like, I don't know if it's possible. So what, what challenged me the most and what rocks my cage is I believe that our biggest problems that we face right now as a species are problems that don't lack technological solutions by any means. We can do better in technology for sure, but we lack implementation. We lack getting around biases and misunderstandings. So if you've ever done like archery or something, it's like all your shots go to the left. You're like, oh, I just got to aim one foot to the right and I'm going to yeah. come out just right. Yeah. So we know all these ways in which our ideas, our, our appetites, our temperaments, our belief, we know a lot of ways in which they deviate, in which they go off in certain, predictably. And so we have to realize there's some ways in which our own, the ways that we, our proclivities are great. You know, like if we put our hand on a hot stove, that works fine. <laughs> we don't have to do anything about that. You know, if we see like the, the scary thing chasing us at night, our visceral reactions are flawless, do just what they tell us to do. But there's countless examples in which our visceral reactions are flawed. And we already know which way they go off target. We have to get in habits of compensating for that. You know, like I do my best to, when I read something, what are my biases going into this? What would I like to believe? What am I led to expect? Okay, put those things down. That's where I might go wrong. How would I look things differently if those things weren't there? So yeah. we have to have like just habits to say, yeah, that's what rattles my cages in which we get in these big unnecessary debates and drama about things. When we have the data, we have the information there, we don't need to. And it's, it's for, for reasons that are predictable about how our minds work. And oftentimes perhaps the root of why we're in those debates and creating controversy and the drama is because that is in fact the grouping of our arrows like we are a drama creator and if we if we don't live in stress then we don't it doesn't feel safe 
Well, and that's that's one of our innate biases that we're disproportionately driven by outrage. You know, we we tend to seek it out. We tend to feel rewards from that. We don't necessarily enjoy it like we enjoy uh, watching a sunset, but it's something that we we gravitate toward. And yeah, that that's one of the many ways we're led astray. And it's just it just makes me sad to see all the things that go wrong that don't have to go wrong. What's an example? Well, our political situation, our climate situation, the way we respond to the current pandemic. I mean, take your pick. It's big stuff. <laughs> and these are things to where we've really got answers. You know, smart people have figured out things that we can do, but we don't really know how to communicate things in ways to get them to be effectively understood and acted on. I want to take a quick moment and discuss the value of adding some electrolytes into our water as we are drinking throughout the day. So you might be drinking water, but is that water in fact actually permeating into your cells? Electrolytes are incredibly valuable for the electrical function of our body and also just the general function of hydration. If you're drinking water, let's say distilled water or filtered water or something of the sort, very important that you remineralize it. So we teamed up with our friends over at Element who make the most delicious, simplistic in the best way possible, meaning they don't have a bunch of BS ingredients, electrolyte beverage that I've come across. So I use it literally every single day. It's my pre-workout, it's my post-workout. It makes water delicious and you get it for free. So for Align listeners, they're giving us a very special deal where you get uh, a free, what do you get? You get a couple citrus flavors, raspberry flavors, orange flavors, unflavored. So you pay for shipping. I think shipping's like like five bucks and uh, you can try this stuff out. So highly recommend trying it out. Uh, you can go to drinklmnt.com forward slash align and you can get started. So it's drinklmnt.com forward slash align for a free sample pack of this stuff. And then if you do decide to continue forward with drinking more of it, which I'm very confident you will, uh, they have a full money back guarantee, no questions asked, just you just get a refund, no big deal. And um, they're great. So I trust this company emphatically. Rob Wolf is the founder. He is a close friend. He is also a mad scientist, jujitsu, yogi, weightlifting, New York Times bestselling badass. So I love Rob. I love this product. And I think you guys are going to really enjoy it. So go to drinklmnt.com forward slash align to get yourself a free sample pack. So how would a person, because I think for a lot of people, they wouldn't necessarily, I, I greatly value archery and it's very convenient. It's like a big pat on the back when you do have a consistent grouping because you're like, great, perfect. I'll just move over a little bit. Awesome. But right. the, the issue comes when the groupings, there is no grouping. Uh, sure. and, then, and then the other issue I think could come culturally where I'm not able actually even to s- s- observe my groupings in any any kind of well, measurable we way. We can't even agree that we want to hit the target. <laughs> Where the fuck's the target in the first place? Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> do we even want to do that? Is that even the point? <laughs> so how does a person start to be able to to measure and manage their grouping? Even to start to begin the conversation that holy shit, I have a grouping. I didn't even realize. So one thing I've thought, because this, this has been like, I think our, our core biggest problem as a species. You know, you and I get to the big stuff right away and this is this is it, but um, I know good ways in which this can be addressed, but I don't know good ways to scale it. 
So the good ways to address are, it comes back to epistemology. And this was one of my, one of my minors in, in college, was about just the study of knowledge. How do we know what we know? And it's, it's difficult for us to talk about our beliefs because we identify with them so much. Like they are who, we see them as who we are. But for whatever reason, we tend not to identify as deeply with our, our epistemology, how we form those beliefs. Right. So it's often safer to go into, you know, why do we think that? How did we come to that conclusion? What are some similar scenarios in which we might have thought differently? Those are often safe ways to explore with a you know, Socratic method, asking questions. That's often safe. And so that, that's one cool thing. But I would just love to figure out ways that people could scale that on more, more broadly. It's safe. And, and I think maybe you could say it's, it's kind of lazy. You know, if you, if you just become an ideologue of one specific branch of, of thought, then it's almost like you can just check out on thinking. Right. Well, and that's, that's part of the appeal. You know, we don't want to put energy into thinking when we can avoid it. <laughs> so you need to go out of your way to think. You do. And that, that's a great way of putting it. And that, that could be one simple principle. It's like, hey, is this something that I'm doing as a reaction or did I really plan this out? Is this what I, what's deliberate for me? Or are these so, just like a phrase that snuck into me from social media that I'm repeating? <laughs> so if you see a person that's stuck in their own echo chamber and they just are parroting all of the other ideas and they're not, they have, they've been kind of trained out of thinking for themselves. I know this is going yeah. way beyond thyroid conditions, but we this can circle it back. I, I promise. No, it's um, all good. I'm having fun with you, dude. It's all, all right. Good, good. I appreciate <laughs> that. How does one, what's the, the, the granular bullet point stages or steps to come back into thinking? You know, I think the first thing is just trying to figure out what the process was. How did I arrive at these conclusions? You know, did I, did I really sort this out? And the trick is that our minds work much more quickly to justify what we believe than to process data. You know, we, one, one very right. simple trick is, is to differentiate. This is from Jonathan Haidt's work. He's got a great book called um, The Moral Compass. Number and two, book two. Number two. It's that's, on that's, the list. Moral I'm Compass. Not, I'm not sure if I would change the order of those. I'm not sure, but phenomenal book. Um, All right. I'm, re- I'm getting them this week. The big picture. And, I, moral and that's not, that's not correct for the title. I'll get the correct title name to All you. Right. But, um, it All basically right. talks about, there's two ways we look at data. It's like, must I believe this or can I believe that? And I would challenge people just mm. to quickly, once they hear something new, ask themselves which lens they're using. If we hear things that we're inclined to believe, then the thought is almost like, can I believe that? Well, that makes sense. You know, sure, that kind of fits what I believe. And is there some way I can take that in? Sure, that sounds plausible enough. I'm not going to like scrutinize it that close, but sure, that sounds right. And the other lens is, you know, must I believe that? If we hear something that doesn't fit our own beliefs and biases and expectations, then we try to, we get hypercritical. Like, yeah, well, you know, who funded the study? Or yeah, well, was that this? So it's, it's, the, it's the must I believe that approach. So yeah, just catch yourself when you hear something and try to try to flip that. If you hear something that supports what you already think, see if you can't uh, uh, poke some holes in it, you know. And if you hear something that you immediately reject, see if you can't find some way in which that might be true. What about meditation? Do you think that's a good way to start to step into more observation of what the hell's going on? I mean, it sounds like obvious because it's like inherent in the idea of it, but what are your thoughts on meditation? You know, it's a powerful thing for, for many people. And you can just have some space by which you can become a little bit more aware of the fact that, you know, back to the free will thing, if you do pause and you're still for a moment, you realize that these thoughts come to you, not by your choice. You know, you're, you're not choosing the next thoughts that come into your head. 
And when you start to realize that in a very visceral sense, you can have a little bit more um, skepticism towards your own thoughts and ideas and realize that they're not always things that represent your identity or your goals or your best conclusions. They're just this static that can pop up in your head sometimes and you can more easily let go of that. What's meditation like for you? There was a, a Shingon Buddhist Vajracharya that I trained with for many years, really cool guy. So yeah, I've done formal meditation in various ways and it's, it's incredible. It's really valuable. Me personally, I end up having a hard time putting equal passion into it and my physical exercise. Yeah. So I, a lot of what I get the benefits in that way is, is my physical exercise, but then also journaling. I do massive amounts of journaling on a regular basis. Mm. Tell me more about journaling. Cause I think I, I personally, it's another one of those things. I think I'm inherently very lazy and, but there are certain things that when I do them, it really does feel like quite healthy and journaling feels very purgative. And so as opposed to swirling around in my internal dialogues that it's just on repeat, you know, whatever they say, 80% of our, our thoughts are just repetitions of yesterday right. and yesterday and yesteryear, right. which is crazy, man. We're just this, we're like, we're just reruns. So well, if you can get to that point where you can get it out and look at it and examine it, I think it gives you that spaciousness to be like, okay, this is what's, this is what's in here. You know, something that seemed true for me, at least, is that a lot of our thoughts, yeah, they're not really worth the passing time. And I've spent a lot of time, I think, giving them more attention than they're due. But I found that there are oftentimes just core things that are recurrent, like the stupid things that I've done or said that keep coming back to me or, you know, regrets or whatnot. And a lot of just core recurrent issues, it seems like that there's just unlearned lessons. And if I mm. take those and sit down and say, okay, look, Let's put this out there. I can't change what I did. I can't change what others did around me or did that I felt did to me. I can't change any of that. Yeah. But if the situation were to replay in some way, in some version, what would I have done differently? You know, what, what could I change now moving forward? And then kind of journaling along those lines. That seems to be powerful. And a lot of the, a lot of the more, I don't know, hard to dissociate from thoughts, the ones that really grab me and suck me in emotionally, it's helped me get a lot more space from those. And so this never shuts off, but it makes the stuff that's most disturbing less of a factor. Do you have any definition for God? I don't. <laughs> that was a big focus of mine for a while too, was religious studies or whatnot. And no, no definition that I would have that's new that way. What's been the, the, the course of your thoughts on God? Um, you know, I think that there's this big world we don't understand all of and, and, and it's funny because we think about if there's things that are within the realm of science or things that are supernatural. And I don't know, even if, even if things happen that didn't fit within what we think of as nature, you could still be scientific and say that must be what it was. You know, if we saw the, the sky part and we saw a being come down and do stuff, you could say, oh, okay, well, that was why the sky parted. You know, you could still be scientific and embrace the supernatural. But, yeah. you know, there's things that we can explain and things that we can't. And I, I do my best to be comfortable knowing that there's some things that we cannot explain. Have you tried psychedelics? Um, I've, I've not. Is that something that's and interesting I, to you in, in relation to like all the research well, and such? I was, I, was an epileptic, I was an epileptic child and I'm um, aware that there are greater risks for those reasons. And so I've, I've intentionally thought that wouldn't be a good fit for me. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. Well, I so greatly appreciate you, man. What's, what's, I want to go, we need to go back to thyroid stuff, but just every time I have your, I appreciate your mind so much and you're so much, <laughs> you're so much more clear and linear and to the point than my kind of deranged, 
cloudy thoughts. And so I always, whenever I'm like, cool, we're like, we've got a North Star. I've got Dr. Christensen. <laughs> so thank you for setting me straight, sir. Um, what are, so if a person doesn't know that they have some type of thyroid stuff going on, what are some like baseline indications that something might be happening? Yeah, that, that audience certainly exists. And the biggest thing is that they're, they're tired and doesn't make sense. Everything else should be fine. They, they do everything that seems to work for others, but they still can't lose weight or can't keep it off. Yeah. Um, hair, skin, nails, menstrual irregularities, uh, brain fog. Those are the big things that show up for people. Okay. And then from there, buy your book. Yeah, I think the biggest audience <laughs> is those that has thyroid disease already. They're aware of it. And the exciting thing is that it's, it's reversible, you know, and I th I'm trying to think about how many years ago it was when I was in your living room and we we're talking, I think it was, that was around the time this data was first coming out. But if oh, wow. you went back much further, I didn't know these things that I put in this book. This is new stuff. You know, we thought that we could do a better job managing thyroid disease or helping the symptoms. But now we know that for the majority of people, it can reverse with just simple, simple dietary changes. Do you think that all diseases have a absolute potential for clearing? Well, yes, not for all people and not at all stages, but there, there certainly are cases of almost anything you could think of spontaneously reversing. I guess there certainly are exceptions more so like, like what, like limb amputation or major birth defects that we have know of no good cases and spontaneously getting better. Lots of other things certainly can, you know, and there's also then, the disease itself and our experience of that, but, but no, we, we can change greatly. If I were to ask you, uh, like, what is the root of disease just as a big blunt nebulous question, what would you say? Sure. Yeah. So I would pull that apart into some elements. So one yeah. thing I alluded to was like congenital issues, you know, there's like trauma that happens. You get hit by a truck. It's kind of straightforward. There, there might be reasons why you weren't looking that we could go into, but, but yeah, there's like trauma and then we've got infectious disease, which we're seeing run amok currently. And then we've got chronic disease. So almost all chronic non-communicable disease, that's going to be the diabetes, the Alzheimer's, uh, much many cancers are driven by this, the heart disease, you know, liver disease, lung disease. So a lot of that collectively, it's really two big things. Uh, one of which we talked about already, the HPA, you know, how, how resilient we are in that fight or flight axis. The other one is the level of circulating adipokines. So that's like really reduct, redu, reductionistic, but it's basically how much toxic fat you have in your organs. Hmm. But yeah, those two things can arguably be thought to be drivers of almost all non-communicable disease. Why does one start um, developing toxic fat? Well, there's, there's more fuel than somebody needs. They're burning less fuel than they would need to, or they can't efficiently metabolize fuel. It's like something along those lines. Hmm. And our body has a lot of ways in which we try to store the excess in ways that are more harmless. You know, first thing is we put that below our skin, the subcutaneous, and that doesn't really correlate with disease risk. But at some point, we can't grow that very well anymore. And people are different that way. Some can make it all day long. And they're the folks that can be morbidly obese, but still seemingly healthy. There's yep. others that cannot make a lot of subcutaneous fat effectively. And they're the ones that are not as big, but still developing diabetes. So when we can't put it in safe places, we put it in the more dangerous place inside the organs. The yep. worst place is inside the cells. You know, excess fuel there is more toxic than any poison you could think of. 
And how does the body determine whether they end up producing more visceral fat versus, I guess, maybe appendicular or whatever the term for non-visceral fat would be? Yeah, there's some, there's some differences in terms of how well we can form connective tissues, how well we can create new blood vessels for cells to grow, you know, how quickly those cells can hypertrophy. But it really comes down to phosphofructokinase and some key enzymes that our body uses to determine our overall state of energy balance. Hmm. All right. Where should people go from here? Get your book, obviously. Is that the yeah, best, the the best book, source? Yeah, there's also um, Invisible Iodine. There's a docu-series you made talking about how prevalent this is and how it's been this big global thing that's changed and how people can, what, what are the big hidden sources they might not be aware of? So yeah, invisibleiodine.com is another easy resource. Great. I love it. Why would somebody get this book if they're experiencing what? They've got thyroid disease, you know, Hashimoto's, hypothyroidism, grave disease. Uh, the studies done on this diet have shown that 78% of the time, People can have normal thyroid function in three months just by getting to the right window of their iodine. Okay. I love it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Uh, I look forward to seeing you really soon. All right. Likewise. All right. Over now. I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. I'm very excited to share with you that we put together the resistance band strength training program. So we've been asked a lot about how we can get gains while we are at our homes or in a park or in a hotel using nothing more than resistance bands. So we put it together for you guys. So we got like 40 plus videos in there and you can find it at alignpodcast.com slash courses. And then you'll go down and check out the ultimate resistance band training program. So that will be utilizing the line strength kit, which can also be found at alignpodcast.com, but you could use any resistance bands that you got. So the exercises will be applicable for any kind of bands that you got. The strength kit includes four different bands and a hip band and a traveling case and a door anchor and all that stuff. So it's, it's good in that way that it's got everything, but the resistance band training program, it's got all the stuff that you need. And uh, I think you guys are going to dig it. So jump over to alignpodcast.com slash courses if you want to get your resistance on. All right. Thanks so much. Bye.